Hi, and welcome to Axelbank Reports History and Today Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Philip Bump, the author of The Aftermath The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. This is his first book. He's a national correspondent for The Washington Post, where he focuses on the data behind politics. Thanks so much for being here, Mr. Bump. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Before we start our interview, I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. Suddenly, America is not growing. For the first time since George Washington was president, population growth was nearly flat last year, just 0.1%. Philip Bump writes that if another baby boom generation started right now, America would effectively break. We would have to have twice as many schools, public services, and infrastructure to handle the influx of people. He also argues that the boomers weren't just part of America, they became America. Their needs, wants, politics, and cultural dictates were all encompassing. So my first question, Philip, if a new generation of that size would break America today, why didn't it break America back then? It did, actually. You know, I <laughs> well, mean, there you we, go. What, <laughs> yeah. what a question. And that's it. Thanks, <laughs> thanks for what a question. Uh, no, I mean, it. Uh, it essentially what happened so we have you know there's about 140 million people in america in 1945 and over the course of the next 19 years more than 75 million kids were born right and that's just it's staggering to think about it means you know the equivalent today would be having you know 165,000 children born you know north of that even uh over the course of the next 20 years and that's you know uh did i say thousand yeah exactly yeah, say, right. yeah. you know just an enormous enormous number of kids and uh you, you think about what that means. I mean, to, to the point you raised earlier, you'd have to build new schools. You'd have to accommodate them. You'd, you'd build a massive new marketplace for babies, right? And th this is exactly what happened at the onset of the baby boom. All of a sudden, you have all these companies that cater to babies that are seeing this bonanza, this huge new marketplace that has emerged and lasted for several decades. Then, of course, you see the same thing happen where where you have to build all these schools. You have this this uh, these kids then eventually become teenagers. And it's this huge group of consumers that really start to drive what consumerism looks like in the United States. And so it really did. I mean, when we say break, obviously, you can break things in all sorts of different ways. But it really did force America to reckon with this massive population of people in a way that it's very fair to characterize as breaking it. It, re it forced America to change how it did any number of things, where it put money, how it invested how it did politics, all these things. As the boom continued to age, it continued to break different things and eventually just reshaped America entirely. What was the biggest change in terms of public policy that had to be made to handle all of these new people? Well, I think education was really a signal moment because you know, at the outset, you have to build new kindergartens, right? That's not that complicated. And you have to hire new kindergarten teachers and so on and so forth. But as kids get older, you start to have to do more of these things in more complicated ways, right? You have to have, you know, once you get to high school, you have to have teachers who are trained in how to actually educate high schoolers, right? And that's not, that's, you know, I don't mean that my kids in kindergarten, I mean, disparage <laughs> kindergarten teachers, but it's a very different ball game. Then you get to college, right? And all of a sudden, you have all these young people who are graduating from high school and 
and they have to go somewhere. Are they going to go into the workforce? There's only so many jobs in the workforce. Are they going to go to college? There's only so many colleges and professors, you know, even harder still to get geared up. You know, we end up sending a lot of those teenagers to Vietnam. You know, is it a coincidence that the baby boom came on the scene and became of military age right when Vietnam was gearing up? No, not at all. Right. Mm. There, there's overlap there. And so so but but education is such a good example because it, it is something that had to be changed in order to accommodate this population from top to bottom. You know, this county of Los Angeles, the, the, the fact that I'd like to point out, county of Los Angeles is averaging one new school every single month over the course of the baby boom from elementary to middle to high school. It's and that's one count. It's insane. I mean, the, the scale of this thing, and it just yeah, it forced everything to change. Imagine if you tried to open up a new school every month, and, and even right. the smallest school district in America, it'd be impossible. Um, the the oldest baby boomers right now, if you consider the baby boom in the beginning of 1946, um, the oldest ones are about 80 years old, 77, 78 years old. Um, right. that is beyond the average life expectancy uh, in the United States. So unfortunately, of course, they're going to start dying off in greater and greater numbers. Um, why did you decide that now was a good time to take stock of what they have meant for our country and what could be coming next? Yeah, it's a fair point. I mean, the, the one reason, obviously, is that there isn't going to be a hard and fast point at which the baby boom ends, you know, happily. You know, it's not going to be the case that baby boomers are all, you know, dying in the next five years. <laughs> Luckily, baby boomers will be around for decades. My parents are baby boomers. You know, I, I, I'd like them to stick around, right? Mine too. Uh, so the, too. The, yeah. Include so them that in aspect now, of so, it. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So you, uh, both of our parents, everyone else yeah. is not that worried about, but our parents <laughs> definitely. Um, but uh, the other aspect of it is that we really are at this moment where the baby boomers are starting to lose their grip on power. And that's what really triggered it. This realization that the baby boomers who had been accommodated their entire lives by American society and culture and government had been had been having their needs tended to primarily all of a sudden they are facing competition from a younger generation the millennials and even younger still gen z which is you know combined millennials and gen z are larger than the baby boom was in terms of sheer numbers uh, of course the population in the united states was smaller so the baby boom was a greater percentage of the population but this is a large group of people that is now competing for resources. And this isn't just an abstraction, right? Now, remember, we talked about how the baby boom as it aged was forcing things to break. Well, we finally got to the point where the baby boom has retired and is now entering senior care and, you know, extended long-term medical care and things along those lines. And those systems now have to accommodate the baby boom. The government now has to start in the way that it had to build kindergartens in 1950. Now it has to start building senior housing. But at the same time, you have this younger generation of people and they have different needs. They need schools themselves. They need education funding. They need child care. And they have a lot of votes. They may not vote as heavily as boomers, but they have a lot of votes. And so you see this tension playing out between these two large groups of people that really is forcing a reckoning around the power of the baby boom, which I think makes this uh, book important at the moment. Is it possible to put a baby boomer into a box and say, um, this is about when they were born. This is about where they were born. This is about what their politics are and about what kinds of families and occupations they've had. Yeah, it's it's easier to talk about baby boomers in contrast to younger Americans for a few reasons. The first is that the baby boom itself is so disparate, right? You know, you have, you know, the baby boom is viewed as sort of heavily conservative, which isn't entirely fair. I mean, the baby boom is, you know, almost evenly split Democrat Republican. It's just that because the Democratic Party skews so much younger, that older white Americans make up a much bigger percentage of the Republican Party. And so they're sort of more associated with it. Uh, but uh, instead of looking at, you know, sort of the average boomer, it's more useful, I think, to compare it to 
you know, the, the what boomers are collectively to what millennials are collectively because the contrasts are greater. So, for example, the baby boom is much whiter than than younger generations, in part because immigration was uh, was being uh, restricted during the period when the boom actually occurred. You know, younger people today are much more likely to be the child of an immigrant or immigrants themselves than were baby boomers. They're much less likely to be white. They're more likely to be black or Asian or particularly Hispanic. Uh, they are. There was this trend that began actually with the baby boomers of moving away from institutions. Uh, uh, that they were less likely to participate in religion and things along those lines. That trend is, has, has continued very much with the younger generations, and younger generations today are much less likely to participate in institutions, including political parties, church attendance. Uh, but at the same time, they're also better educated. So this trend that the boomers started of going to school more, going to college more, that also continued. And so you have younger people are much better educated than older people. So there are these various differences between young and old. Older, you know, older Americans literally were everyone in America, right? So you know, sort of categorizing them beyond anything, anything beyond American is is sort of difficult, but there's, there's a sharp contrast with younger people. This is sort of an aside question, but were, uh, how much did you su- su- study the baby boom squared, like the children of the baby boom? How important is that to your book? Yeah, you know what's wild about the baby boom is that we we tend to think of generations in very stark and sharp terms uh, that isn't accurate, right? I mean, there were baby boomers that gave birth to baby boomers, right? You're born in 1946 <laughs> and you're having a kid at 18, then all of a sudden your kid's a baby boomer too, right? right? Like, right. you know, but at the same time, you also have baby boomers, right? You know, I mean, Mick Jagger had a kid, right? <laughs> like you know, that guy's silent generation, he's still having kids, right? So, you know, I mean, it is it is not really hard and fast uh, along, <laughs> you know, when, when we think about it this way. Um, so, uh it is very clear that people find it useful to think about generations as collective groups. And it is also clear that there are certain differentiators that set apart groups like the millennials from the baby boom. It is the case, however, the Census Bureau only recognizes one generation as demographically unique and identifiable. That's the baby boom, simply by virtue of the number of the kids that were born. Uh, so, you know, it is useful for us to think about this in terms of generational conflict, older and younger, in part because we're all familiar with, you know, our own interpersonal, interfamilial generational tensions. Uh, but, you know, it is not quite so clear cut as boomers had Gen X who had millennials who had Gen Z. It just it didn't work that way. It, it, it just hit me that Donald Trump is like born the first year of the baby boom, 1946, and his kid is way younger uh, than me, at least one well, sure. of the five kids. Um, yeah, he's a millennial uh, baron, sure. Uh, uh, why, you know, it's easy to put the baby boomers into this box, like this little explanation of like why it happened. People came back from World War II and they had families. Um, Is the story that clear cut? Why did the baby boom sure. happen? Yeah, no, I mean, it's not. If you think about it for a second, right? Like you, 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 no matter, no matter how uh, constrained you felt by World War II, you weren't having kids for 19 years once that once that constraint was relaxed. There's uh-huh. no, you know, it's like, like talking about the death of the baby boomers. There's no way, nice way to talk about, you know, horny soldiers. But anyway, the point being that that was no, a pretty nice way not... to talk about them. Yeah, that wasn't so. <laughs> that like, wasn't nice. There were a few reasons to it. And honestly, the book doesn't get into them because it's been, you know, better written elsewhere. Uh, but essentially, we had this period of uh, global challenges, but also national challenges that lasted several decades up until the baby boom, uh, you know, from the Great Depression to, you know, World War One and go back before that, but World War Two in particular. Uh, then you have in the aftermath of World War Two this massive surge, you know, huge economic boom, uh, huge surge in national confidence, which, you know, obviously is sort of vaguely articulated, but it's certainly something that was felt. And you you had these various factors of people sort of holding off and having kids, not sure about it. And then all of a sudden just being enthusiastic, you know, let's just go ahead and have kids and let's, you know, and then it also 
sort of builds on itself. Like everyone's having kids. You know, this is the big thing. You know, I mean, Life Magazine. I've got the original Life Magazine here. You know, like just celebrating oh, all these kids that are being born. And it's just sort of, you know, it became a cultural phenomenon to some extent as well. Um, and, uh, you know, again, lasts for 19 years, which is which is not simply a function of, of people deciding they're going to have a kid and be done with it. It was interesting to me because I looked at the chart myself, and this is a rudimentary chart. I mean, this is like Wikipedia stuff, but the b- birth rates were already going up significantly even before the baby boom officially starts. Yeah, so there had been some concern in the early 1940s in particular that the United States was going to see some stagnation. Uh, and there's a report that I cite in the book from the late 1930s that talks about that, you know, talks about the government's concern. Look, we don't want to go down the path of some of these European countries where they're they're seeing, you know, their, their younger population decline. There actually was a boom before the boom, you know, and they started talking about a BB boom even in 1945, just based on the increase in births that had happened over the course of World War II, which also sort of <laughs> undercuts the narrative about the soldiers. Um, obviously, there were some soldiers coming back. But um, yeah, so there was this little blip, this little boom prior to the giant boom. Uh, and so uh, I think that even at the time, people were like, oh, okay, good. This trend's turning around and little did they know. My, my favorite thing about the whole book is that you you interviewed the first baby boomer and yeah. you, you kind of tease that, but then you get there at the end and I was like, oh, cool. He actually found mm-hmm. her. That's a great way to do reporting. Uh, her name is Kathleen Casely Kirschling. Um, right. What was she, what what's she like, by the way? Is she like what sure. we would think the typical baby boomer is? No, I don't think so, man. She's really, she's fascinating for a, a lot of reasons. The first is that she's, she really is very, here's the thing that struck me about her. So I, I reached out to her because she was born just at the stroke of midnight, January 1st, 1946. And so according to the Census Bureau, the baby boom really started in about the middle of 1946, but it's hard to find, you know, the first person born on a vague random day. Uh, and so in 1980, a guy, Landon Jones, who at the time was uh, working for, I believe, Forbes magazines, one of those uh, money magazines, he was writing a book about the baby boom. And so he actually tracked Case, uh, Kathleen Casey Kirschling down and identified her as the first baby boomer and sort of just canonically made her just declared her she's the first boomer and what's fascinating is when you read his book great expectations which came out in 1980 he sort of just talks about her in the abstract as you know here's this person but then over the years he kept going back to her and interviewing her so she would have been 34 when he first talked to her um yes but she didn't know about it until no that's a good point actually because i think the book came out in 1980 but she says she didn't first start talking to him until she was 40 maybe she said almost 40 but it was she was was around 40 according to her it doesn't matter no, it's fine. Uh, no, it's, it's important to get these these accurate. So I want to make sure I'm getting it right. But anyway, it's very clear she's extremely self-aware of being the first baby boomer by now, right? And she's been interviewed lots of times as the first baby boomer. So when you talk to her, you're talking to her as this person, this individual who went through this thing, but also as someone who's very cognizant of that position. And, and it's hard not to see in her responses. And I don't mean this in any way pejoratively, uh, but that she's just aware of being a reflection of the boom. And so when she talks about herself, she often contextualizes it, is it in the, you know, what the boom broadly is doing. Right. And which is just sort of a fascinating way to live your life. Uh, but yeah, she's a perfectly charming woman. She is, you know, she is very cognizant of the ways in which boomers are were advantaged and younger people aren't. Um, and she's just she's just she's very wonderful and helpful. And, and I'm grateful. Uh, to her. Was she at all hesitant to talk to you or she's just so used to being hit up that she's like, yeah, whatever, let's just do it. 
Yeah, no, there is there are uh, I reached out to a couple of people um actually when I started in the book, including a person who I'd found who wasn't Landon Jones's book, who uh I had found through old newspaper clippings was born right at the stroke of midnight. Um and you know, so I sent letters because I A, I didn't have um email addresses necessarily, and B, because I thought they'd, you know, they'd be might be more likely to pick up. And she responded just like right off, you know, instantly and was like, Hey, cool. let's talk and and so we started down from there. Nice. Uh, what were your sources for this? I'm always curious. I always ask this question. Is it just the data? Were you just pouring through charts? Um, did you? How many on the ground interviews did oh, you man. do? Um, what? How many books did you consult? F- newspapers, sure. magazines. Just explain your process in creating this portrait. Yeah, I mean, you know, I talked to probably 100 people. Uh, from college professors to a guy who runs a cemetery in Brooklyn to a guy who you know studies how long human beings live to you know you name it, um, countless books, a lot of research papers, uh, a lot of college uh, professors and research papers uh, that were very helpful in sort of understanding. You know, one of the one of the core themes of the book is what happens to American uh, demography and does it match what the Census Bureau expects because that drives a lot of our politics in the moment. And so there's a lot of research around race, uh, you know, talking to economists about housing economy, you know, economics is not my forte. So I, you know, spoke to a lot of people who, for whom it is. Uh, my favorite thing that I dug up was I wanted to tell the story of how Americans, how Americans, how people broadly are bad at predicting the future. And I stumbled onto this story about a time capsule that's to, the, to this day sits in Birmingham City Hall. And it was created in 1950 when Birmingham was turning 100 and it's supposed to be opened in 2050. And so I was reading about it and reading, you know, the predictions, they had all these leaders write letters to be put in this time capsule. And I was reading about them and I came across this one from the police chief in Birmingham. And I mean, you've read a book, so you know where the story is going, but, you know, and it was just like, you know, I think in 2050, we'll have to have international police because people will be flying all over and blah, blah, blah. And it was Bull Connor, right. Who, you know, within a decade was infamous for, his horrible abusive behavior to her black Americans. And it's just a reminder of, you know, as I'm sitting here writing this book, looking forward to 2060, which is when the Census Bureau ends its demographic projections and thinking about what America's going to look like. There's a humility and understanding of that, you know, back in 1950, Bull Connor thought everything was going to be peaches and roses forever. <laughs> and the only thing you need to worry about was international flights to, you know, to catch criminals because uh, he just always lacked that self-awareness. Uh, and so, you know, that was my favorite thing I do. I actually contacted the library in Birmingham. They sent me a copy of the letter and it's, uh, you know, it's sort of fascinating just to, to be able to see this thing that, you know, isn't going to be seen by anyone else until 2050. Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful story. Um, The sequence, I'm a big presidential history guy. Uh, so the sequence of birth dates of American presidents is really weird for much of history, or maybe it's not so weird. There's a clear relationship between the years presidents were born and when they took office. Um, But when you get to Clinton, the increases stop. He mm-hmm. and George W. Bush are both born in 1946. So that now represents 16 years of a baby boomer at the helm. Then Obama, you kind of jump ahead. Okay, he's not necessarily a baby boomer, though some might say he was. Um, he's sort of an anomaly. But then we go back to 1946 again with right. Donald Trump. We had three presidents born in the same year and they took office. You know, they held office from 1992 to 2020. Um, so what does that pause, what does that kind of, that, that time period say about the enduring political power of baby boomers? 
Yeah, I mean, just to correct the record, Barack Obama is a baby boomer. Is he a boomer. baby boomer? Yeah, yeah. I mean, is, 60, yeah, 15 years does seem like a long time, though, but yeah. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, people, you, you when you say there are four baby boomer presidents, people yeah. assume it's Biden, but Biden's actually silent. He's um, pre- yeah, I mean, not, <laughs> yeah, he's pre- yeah, he is. Boomer, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, not only were Trump and Bush and Clinton all born in 46, they were born two months of each other. Like, it went it went June, July, August. It's, it's insane. Yeah. And I think I think the lesson that you take away from that is twofold. First, that they represent the three major strains of politics in America today, right? There's probably a fourth strain, which is, you know, the, the, the very progressive left. But you have Bill Clinton as the moderate Democrat. He gets elected first. You have uh, George W. Bush as the establishment Republican. He gets elected next. And then you have Trump as the, you know, hard right uh, Republican. And so you can see how the baby boom even just in that same year, encapsulates those three political ideologies. But then you think about the fact that they came in that order and you see also a progression of how the boom was voting, right? So you have this fairly liberal population of people voting for Clinton. They become a little bit more conservative with George W. Bush. They become much more conservative and vote for Trump. And you see that progression through time as well. Uh, and that's that's the way in which I like, I, I think those, those three births in a row representative. What does it say about, I mean, when you look at the power that they exude over the presidency and then in Congress, I mean, when I was reading it in your book, there are so many members of Congress that represent this generation. And sure. maybe unlike other generations, they just haven't seemed to gone away at all. Yeah, they're going, they're starting to go away. Uh, and, you know, I don't mean to sound nasty when I say that, but it's true. And if you look at the average age of Congress over time, uh, when boomers start to get of Congress age shortly thereafter, you see the shift in the average age of Congress, the average age of Congress shift down to about where boomers are. And then it just stays, you know, a one to one yeah. match, you know, year, you to add the year yeah. every year. And but in the most recent election cycles, it's actually started to dip down again. And we had this really important moment that doesn't make the book because the book was finished before this happened. But you had this moment where the Democratic leadership this year, in part because they lost the majority, certainly, but even beyond that, all the senior leaders of the Democratic Party who were all older, you know, boomer or older, stepped down and made way for a new generation of leaders. And I think that's representative both of the recognition by them that they had sort of reached the end of their 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 need for power to some extent. But also that the Democratic Party, which is very heavily made up of young people, needed to demonstrate to younger generation of people that this was their time. And we even heard this back in 2020 with Joe Biden, Joe Biden pledging, you know, he's going to be a bridge to a younger generation. He said that because he recognized this is something the Democrats wanted to hear. Uh, but now we're actually seeing that being affected, but only on the Democratic side, because the Democrats are the ones that need to be responsive to these younger voters. Uh, how did technology impact this generation? It's so interesting to me, the word boom, right? It suggests that they had a really big microphone. How does the rise of the baby boomers match the rise of technology and these enormous microphones that we all now have? Yeah. So they, there were a lot of technological developments, which had an important role, particularly in the cultural uh, world around baby boomers, television, the rise of television ads, you know, transistor radios and radios and cars that, that helped define what boomer culture looked like for teenage boomers. Uh, you know, and over time, we get the emergence of things like social media. But, you know, I think those are generally recognized and polling supports the idea that that baby boomer aged people have been less likely to to, uh, to take up those tools. I think it's important to note, though, and I try and note this in interviews like this, that one of the things, the baby boom was very vocal and it was vocal through scale, right? So, you know, the reason that the 
voting age shifted from 21 to 18 wasn't simply that they, you know, people were objecting to Vietnam War. It was that you had an absolute massive number of 18 year olds who were advocating and agitating for the right to vote. Uh, and that helped, you know, force a scale. But on an individual basis today, individual young people can be heard in a way that simply wasn't possible back then. There were always gatekeepers. Uh, that need to be get through for for the baby boom. That's not the case anymore. Now you have young people that can become viral sensations overnight and they can do things like challenge the older generation with like songs like OK Boomer and frustrate the older people and be present in older people's lives in a way that wasn't possible when they were young, which I think itself exacerbates some generational tensions. And how does that generational tension manifest itself in our culture and in our politics? Oh, <laughs> I mean, how scores doesn't of it? ways, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah no, right. literally, how doesn't it, right? I mean, you know, there are, let's look at housing. Housing is my favorite example here because it's so clear cut and everyone can understand it. There's a lot of tension between younger people and older people around housing. And it is the case that older people are much, much, much more likely to own houses than younger people for a lot of reasons, including that houses are very expensive. But why are houses expensive, right? It is not the case that baby boomers collectively got together and said, let's keep houses expensive. It was instead the fact that baby boom is a massive generation, many of whom own houses and many of whom see those houses as storehouses of value for their retirement. So if you are looking forward to retirement and you're in your 60s and 70s and your house is that value, you're going to want to preserve the value of that house. And so when there's a community meeting, should we build this apartment building down the block? You show up and you say, no, we should not do that. The effect of that then is to tamp down on the number of affordable homes that are available in your area or new houses in general. And that has a trickle down effect on younger generations who don't have houses to move into. Eventually, this is going to shake out a little bit, right? Both because now there's much more awareness of this issue and more houses is being built, but also because, you know, older people are going to die or they're going to sell those houses to reap that value that they see in them. Uh, and, you know, those houses become available for purchase. But at this moment, that is a way in which individual boomers are making decisions about protecting their own long-term financial security and collectively because the boom is such a massively huge generation that has this 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 crippling effect on the housing market uh, that is disadvantaging a lot of younger people how did the experiences of white baby boomers and black baby boomers compare and contrast well i mean it's certainly the case that Black Americans broadly are have been historically disadvantaged. I mean, I don't need to tell you this. And, you know, there's there was, you know, the boom emerged in this moment uh, immediately in the wake of the civil rights movement. There's some, you know, some boomer involvement in the civil rights movement, not a whole lot. They were they were pretty young at that point in time. Uh, and so there was this sort of new paradigm for race that emerged. And one of the things that I think people forget is, remember, we talked about how immigration was restricted uh, when the boom began. It wasn't lifted until the late 1960s, at which point you started to see more immigrants from Asia and Mexico and Central America, and meaning more Asian and Hispanic immigrants coming to the United States. And so at the time when the boom started, really in the 1970s and 1980s, when we're talking about racial tension, we're talking about white and black. There just weren't that many Hispanic people and Asian people. Uh, you know, it was predominantly when we're talking about racial tension, we're talking about black and, and white. And one of the things that's been fascinating over the course of the baby boom is, well, there's, there's a couple of things. One is that the baby boom itself has gotten less white because immigrants from other countries who were born in this period and therefore technically are categorized as baby boomers uh, have helped to make the baby boom particularly more Hispanic than it was actually at the outset. The baby boom continued to grow until the year 2000, uh, which is sort of surprising uh, given that it ended that. 64, but you know, immigration <laughs> works as magic. Uh, but then you also have this, this reshaping of what 
race racial tension looks like in the United States. So it's always been clear that there is racial tension between white and black and there are disadvantages that black people face in part, obviously, through societal uh, repression based on skin color. But now you have this large population of Americans who don't fit into that white or black grouping. And so part of what the book also does is looks at how demographers and how social scientists view the emerging racial scale in the United States. What what do, what is what are the racial boundaries going to look like in the future as America becomes less centrally white and black and you have these other these people who are Asian and Hispanic and and all these other groups. And to what extent are we under recognizing that we already have this broad scale of, you know, of racial identifications in the United States and this you know, I talk in the book about how the Census Bureau changed the way it collects data. Between 2010, 2020, there's a huge surge in people who identified as white, some other race. And the reason why is because the Census Bureau allowed people to be more descriptive in how they identified themselves. Mm. And so there are a lot of people who identify as white. And if you looked at them, you'd think, oh, that person's white. Really, when when they're asked, <laughs> you know, they say, well, I'm actually white and, you know, I'm part Puerto Rican and, you know, whatever it happens to be. It's just that no one really asks that question except the government. And so the government collects this data and it forces people to sort of decide which box they're in. And it used to be the case that they had these very tightly constricted boxes. Uh, and now they sort of open those boxes up a little bit and given us a more uh, a better sense of the diversity of the United States, which already recolors the way that we look at race in the United States. So your, your question is very specific about white versus black. And, and yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. But this is such, it's a topic which I find personally fascinating. So I, yeah. I went on a little bit of a tangent. But it really is the case that, that what race means in the United States is changing in a way that's alarming a lot of, you know, traditionally white Americans, which overlaps with politics. Well, then let me ask about Barack Obama, because you say that his election signaled a sea change in their approach to politics. So what have you been able to glean from the data about the baby boomers attitudes towards politics and how did it change the moment Barack Obama, a late year baby boomer, became president? So the Obama presidency is fascinating in part because it was, as you say, obviously someone who was not explicitly white who was being elected as president. And so for people who were driven by fears of race-based fears, if you will, that was something that was alarming to them. Uh, It is also the case that around that same period of time, there were new reports about how the Census Bureau was projecting that whites were going to be a minority in the United States over the course of the next X number of decades. Uh, And those numbers have changed when it's actually going to happen. But that was something that triggered a lot of people to be like, oh my God, you know, the, the, the racial apocalypse is upon us, right? The the one of the most important factors, though, when you talk to people who studied the Tea Party, which obviously emerged in, as a response primarily to Barack Obama, one of the things that you learn is that a lot of the people who participated in the Tea Party were older Americans, boomers or older, who were concerned because they saw their young grandchildren or children, mostly grandchildren, who were very much taken with Barack Obama, thought he was great and liked his politics, liked what he stood for. And when you talk about the age gap in presidential voting, it really yawns wide open in 2008. 2004 is a pretty big gap in part because young people hated George W. Bush. But in 2008, it just it becomes this huge chasm. And so you have this older population, many of whom are being told by Fox News and other sources that Barack Obama is a socialist and who've just come out of the Cold War, relatively speaking, right? And they see this, they see Barack Obama as this this strange thing, a representation of how America is changing away from them, a, a, a new style of politics that is explicitly progressive in a way that Bill Clinton wasn't coming from a person who's not white. Mm-hmm. And 
appealing to all these young people. And so there's this fear that America is changing, getting away from them. It's really triggered at that moment by Barack Obama's election and obviously continues to resonate today. Uh, what is going to become, there's a huge debate going on right now, and I guess there always is about what is going to happen to Medicare and Social Security. Um, sure. What is going to become of these programs that baby boomers have relied on and that their kids, um, myself being one of them, would be interested in, in availing themselves of when the time is right? Um, is there the same sentimental relationship that my generation has with those programs and how equipped is the government to adjusting these programs and keeping them going for people of my generation to have. And I guess, you know, is that sentimentality towards them shared by my generation in the way that the baby boomers look at those programs? I would say it's probably not the case that younger people today are terribly aware of the programs, you know, in the in the way that people are not necessarily particularly familiar with programs that they themselves don't use. Um, I, I haven't seen any polling on that, so I can't say that with certitude. But, you know, the, these programs are fascinating, particularly Social Security, because they are designed to have people pay into them as they work and then draw down from once they retire. And so one of the things that we're seeing as we talk about the drawdown of Social Security funds, which, you know, this triggering a lot of alarm, uh, is that this is a sort of a natural extension of baby boomers retiring. There's a huge surge in people working. They've contributed a lot of money to these, these funds, and now they're starting to draw them down. And so when you speak with experts, some of them will be sort of, I don't want to say blasé, but not particularly concerned about it, because this is the way the system is supposed to work. There are a lot of questions, though, right? One question, for example, is how long are baby boomers going to live? If you're guaranteed Social Security, but you know people are living far longer than they used to, or if you're retiring early. And at this point in time, most retirees are baby boomers. If you are going to live for another 30 years, that obviously draws down on those resources in a way that may not have been anticipated based on actuarial tables at the time. So it is certainly the case that it, the system is designed to be inflated with a lot of people working and then drawn down on as a lot of people retire. Uh, it's just not clear that we found the right balance of how much is going to be given out. And, you know, if people have made these determinations about how much they need to retire on, they, they, those may need to shift. They may not get as much money as they're expecting, which obviously creates new strains and stressors. Uh, will the program still be around by the time you and I get to retirement age? I feel pretty confident saying yes, in part because there is, you know, it was largely the Republican Party which was incentivized to attack these programs as, you know, they talked about cutting uh, government spending. But now their base is very heavily either at retirement age or nearing retirement age and much less interested in talking about cutting, you know, programs which they themselves are going to are currently availing themselves of or, or about to. Uh, and so, you know, we see even Kevin McCarthy at this point in time, who yeah, there's been the some table. Republicans yeah. floating it. Yeah, he's just saying yeah. it's not going to happen. And, you know, it's pretty obvious why. Uh, this is a, a total side question, and you may not know the answer. Could Social Security be saved or greatly extended by eliminating the tax cap? I don't know. Yeah, I don't fair know. enough. Uh, there was a debate. <laughs> I mean, look, look. Yeah. I, you know, as I said, you know, I spoke with a lot of smart experts in the book, and you know, I, I relied on what they told me, and I, I'm afraid to say that didn't come up. Fair enough. Um, a couple of years ago, there was a debate. Maybe not much of a debate. Someone said, "Okay, boomer is the new N word." Obviously, it is not, and I'm not ever right. suggesting it is. But what does that say about the sensitivity that boomers themselves have? Uh, I mean, my first response is that famous John Mulaney joke about how, you know, how it's not the N-word is because you're saying, okay, boomer, and you're not saying the N-word, right? <laughs> um, uh, the, again, 
when we talk about OK Boomer in particular, it was people under don't understand that this was largely downstream from the technology the, the te- technology that powered uh, the its emergence. So it emerged on TikTok, and TikTok is designed to make it easy to do video responses to people, right? So someone posts a video, here's me, I'm out, I'm shoveling my driveway, and someone can stitch that together with their own video of them doing something. So what started to happen is boomers, uh, there's this phenomenon technology when you get a bunch of new people who are using it, and then they you know, come on board and they don't understand the norms and they act like idiots and until they understand how technology, you know, the norms of a particular platform. And this happened at the outset of the internet. It happens with new technologies. So basically what happened is boomers started to come to TikTok and they were doing just, you know, they were doing the sort of new guys stumbling around and breaking norms and irritating everyone. And young people started thinking it was funny to take this t- really terrible song. I mean, it's, you know, semi-catchy, I guess, but it's just like aggressively noisy in a way that's intended to be kind of an- annoying. And so they just would stitch themselves, you know, doing things to this song onto these other videos of the boomers. So the boomers then, you know, to the point I raised earlier, they were forced to see these people, like basically making fun of them and, you know, casting them as boomers. And it was intentionally frustrating. It was meant to be trolling. The, the classic New York Times article by my colleague, Taylor Lawrence, uh, that, that first articulated this, quoted a kid who's saying, like, look, if I'm making them mad, it's working, right? It was mm-hmm. it was an effort to troll a community that wasn't used to being trolled, particularly by younger people. And so, right. you know, I, I don't think it's surprising at all that a lot of people got frustrated. Why is it important for journalists to have backgrounds in data the way you do? I think that it is important for journalists to have a perspective that they can bring to something that is unique. I don't, you know, it doesn't have to be data necessarily. Uh, You know, it happens to be data in my case. I do think journalists could do a better job at understanding data, parsing data, uh, and you know, presenting data because I think data is a very good way of telling a complicated story fairly easily. The book itself, you know, has you know well over hundred charts in part because I like to do charts, but also in part because I think it, you know, it, it allows me to, you know, say a picture says a thousand words, right? You know, it says um, yeah, <laughs> it cuts cut several thousand words on the book, um, but. I think that Americans need to be better generally at understanding data and data presentations. I have a newsletter called How to Read This Chart, which is sort of aimed at that. Um, And I think journalists certainly need to. And I think it would make journalists' jobs easier if they were better at presenting data to people. But, you know, I don't think, I think you can be a very good journalist. I have no idea how to do that. Like Bob Woodward. Thank God. I was not to make a chart. Because, (laughs) my goodness, Um, I try when I need it. Um, uh, Your list of columns includes, I looked at the list of them on the Washington Post website, Chinese Balloons. Boris Johnson, George Santos, voter fraud. Um, do you have carte blanche? Uh, how do you pick what you write about? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I have an editor who uh, every morning I pitch a, uh, several stories that I think might be interesting over the course of the day. And what department uh, they, are you in, by the way, when you pitch the it's, editor? It's technically the national desk. National desk. Yeah. So, okay, yeah, go ahead. Which, include, which includes politics underneath yeah. it. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's just sort of what strikes my fancy uh, and tend to be data related. So pull stuff or, you know, I mean, the, the balloon thing, for example, that you mentioned is I was how to make your own spy balloon, which is just <laughs> sort of, you know, a fun way to sort of get in that Take sort notes, of George Santos yeah. thing was I went and, you know, looked at George Santos's FEC records, you know, it tends to be like database stuff or stuff that's just a little outside the box. Um, and, you know, that's that's a it's a lane that I have pretty much to myself, I think, at the post anyway. Is there a big difference between book writing and column 
writing. Oh man, is it? Yeah, I mean, it's like you know, the book was done in the middle of last year, and then I just had to wait for it to come out. Like, you know, the midterms were nerve wracking because it was like, oh my god, what if there's some huge paradigm shift in American politics? That yeah. happily, that wasn't the case. Uh, but yeah, it's just it's it's enormously different. Just you know, I mean, I write three thousand words a day probably for the post, and you know, the book is one hundred thirty thousand. It just took a lot longer because it's not just. You know, it's not just a column of 800 words. It is instead a through line of, you know, at least 20,000 words for a chapter that has a start and a finish. And it's just a, a totally different task. Um, and, you know, it was a new muscle I had to learn. Did you like it? I didn't love it. I'll be honest. <laughs> it was hard. It's hard, man. No, you know, it, I can't imagine. Yeah. Um, what generation needs a similar book? I, I, there will definitely eventually be a book like this about millennials. I think it's safe to say I'm sort of noodling about Gen X. I am a member of Gen X and I think it's sort of fascinating the way in which Gen X has a presence in American culture, particularly in this moment, right? We're starting to see like, you know, I just, my sister who's also Gen X sent me an ad. that's going to be the Super Bowl based on the movie Clueless, which we loved when we were in high school, but it's like a very specific targeting to Gen X, right? Um, you know, the Super Bowl halftime show last year with all those hip hop acts that are hot in the early nineties. Like that's our generation. We're finally getting our moment. That's going to pass very quickly. Mm. And so I, you know, and I, I do think it'd be fascinating to look at how Gen X represents this sort of lull in population growth. Uh, but still has, you know, in sort of being tugged in both ways by these other larger generations. Uh, but, you know, is the market there for people wanting to read about Gen X? I don't know. Finally, um, a good reporter never gives their pitches away. But the good news is this won't come out for at least a week, if not two Sweet. weeks. So my question is, what are you pitching tomorrow morning at the Washington Post? It's a, it's a question I hate to get as a reporter, but do you yeah. know yet what you're going to pitch or do you just like throw it together first thing in the morning? No, I mean, I, 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 I would try and be responsive to what's going on in the news. I'm looking, yeah. I actually have up on my laptop here. Um, one thing I've been meaning to write up about for a while is actually a data-based uh, uh, story, which is looking at this idea. Republicans have this idea that uh, educational systems drive people to the left. And I want to analyze that and look at the data and see the extent to which that is or isn't true. You know, my book research suggests that it's not, uh, but, you know, I haven't looked at that closely and, and, I, and I hope to do so shortly. If I was your editor, I'd say, go ahead and write it. Um, Excellent. Philip Bump, the author of The Aftermath, The Last Days of the Baby Boom and the Future of Power in America. Thanks so much for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Check out the book. Check out his website, pbump.com. He's on Twitter at pbump. I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash axelbankhistory. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axel Bank Reports, History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axel Bank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. See you next time. Thanks. <laughs>